Welcome to High Lawn Baptist Church in St. Albans, West Virginia, where our mission is to know Christ and to make Christ known. We're so glad you're here. For more information, visit us online at highlawnbaptistchurch.org. For 2023, we're embarking on the Year of Our Lord, a user's guide to and through the Scriptures. So grab your Bible and join us as we journey through the Bible. All right. Well, welcome to session 13 as we continue taking a walk through the Bible together. But before we approach the Word of God, let's do so with a season of prayer. If you'll bow your hearts with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this opportunity to gather together and to study your Word. And we thank you for granting us the gift of your Word so that through its pages and through the heroes of times past, Lord, we may draw both knowledge and encouragement. So join with us here to ensure that not only do we gain uh, the, the certainty that is your promise of everlasting life, but that we are molded more and more into the image of your Son, so that as we reflect Him, we may draw others to Him before it is everlastingly too late. In the most holy name of Christ we pray. Amen. Session 13, we're talking about the book of 1 Kings for the most part. There is a lot of overlap between the Kings and the Chronicles. We'll get into more of that a little bit later. But for right now we're talking about the first half of 1 Kings, which is the reign of Solomon. Later on we'll be talking about a, a laundry list of other kings, both good and especially not so good, later on as the kingdom divides. But for right now, we're focusing on one. Now, through the course of the books of Samuel, both books were chiefly about three rulers. You had the last of the kings, Samuel, the last of the judges, rather, Samuel himself, the first king over Israel, King Saul of the tribe of Benjamin. Then, of course, you had King David. Now, as we're going from the books of Samuel into the book of 1 Kings, which is its direct sequel, the first half of that book is taken up by the reign of Solomon. And then after that, there are a bunch of smaller, much, much smaller, less detailed biographies of the kings of Israel and Judah from that point on. But uh, we're concerning ourselves chiefly with the reign of Solomon, featured from chapters 1 to 11, including his rise to power, the building of the first temple, the splendor of Israel in peacetime. This is its zenith of its kingdom. It's unfortunate descent into idolatry and the judgment upon Solomon himself and the adversaries that God actually raises up in judgment over Solomon. Let's take a look really quickly at, a, at another point in Scripture. You don't have to turn there, but really quickly I want us to examine the law of the kings from Deuteronomy chapter 17. Now, before there were even judges ruling over Israel, Israel received the Torah which contained a law that was over the kings. And this was highly unusual in the Near East. It's something that made Israel stand out among all the other nations that were surrounding it. Because in those nations, a king was the law unto himself. He could do and or change however he wanted to. Now later on in Babylon, that would shift. But for the time being, before the rise of, of the codes, the king was a law unto himself. But in Israel, the king was subject to the law. The king ruled underneath God. 
From Deuteronomy 17, from 14 to 20, we read that among other things, the king over Israel is to be chosen by the Lord and him only. The king must be an Israelite. Now that seems like a well-done statement, but in the time of Jesus, that is violated. Herod was not Jewish. Herod was, if memory serves, he was actually descended from Moab. He was a Moabite, I believe. He must be an Israelite. He must not obtain great quantities of horses for himself. He must not send others to Egypt for trade. In fact, it is kind of hinted in the wording that he should not have any relations with Egypt at all because Egypt was the place of slavery. He must not take many wives for himself. He must not accumulate great personal wealth. He must copy for himself a copy of the Torah. He is to go to the temple priests where they will hand him a copy of the scroll of the Torah and then he will have his own blank copy and he will hand copy for himself the entirety of the books of the law and he must read it and study it and meditate upon it daily for the rest of his life. He cannot consider himself in any way, shape, or form greater than the rest of the people of Israel. And he must remain faithful to the covenant of God. He is to be the first among equals. He is a chief executive officer, but he is not apart and above the rest of the people. That is what was supposed to set the kings of Israel as different from the rest of the kings in the region, the rest of the kings of the world, in fact. So this was an entirely new form of royalty. Also going into this section, we have to consider the judgment of God against David's family, where in 2 Samuel chapter 12, we read that God pronounced that the sword will never depart from your house, meaning that violence would always somehow, some way, be looming over David's family. In the opening of the book of 1 Kings, David's third son, excuse me, fourth son by birth, Adonijah, his oldest remaining son, attempted to overthrow David, assuming that David was on his last legs and was about to die. He was known to be a disobedient son, but it's also revealed in God's word that kind of like the judge before Samuel, he was never rebuked for his bad behavior. Now, during this time, we read that David had promised a vow to his wife, the mother of Solomon, Bathsheba, that Solomon would, in fact, become king, kind of usurping that whole decree of firstborn. But Adonijah took upon himself the right outside of David's knowledge. He obtained a military escort. He curried support from several court officials, including Abathar the priest, but there were several others within the palace that refused to side with this because they knew his character. The royal guard, Zadok the priest, Nathan who was the prophet over David, he's the same person that tells David that God knows about your sin, and several other officials declined to go in with this coup. Nevertheless, Adonijah proclaims himself to be king without David's knowledge and actually performs a sacrifice and as a ceremony uh, next to the tent of meeting to proclaim this. But he does it all in secret. He does it all outside of the knowledge of, of not only the palace, the actual palace in David, but also outside of the public of Jerusalem itself. So Nathan and Bathsheba, they put uh, Solomon forward to David as his successor. They go to David while he's on his deathbed and they remind him of the promise that was made to Bathsheba. 
So David comes up with the idea of how we're going to do this and prevent a civil war. He prescribes a public anointing ceremony where the priest will obtain oil from the tabernacle. He will ride through the streets of Jerusalem being placed on David's own donkey. And he will, once he's anointed, be placed upon David's throne. He will be anointed next to the Gihon Spring. The rest of the city of Jerusalem will cheer and proclaim him as the successor. And David will actually live long enough to see his own son ascend to the throne. So the people of Jerusalem, while Adonijah is celebrating this secret feast with his, the rest of his brothers, everyone except for Solomon, and some of the court officials they'd incurred favor with, all of a sudden this cheer comes up from the rest of Jerusalem. And they look out and word comes to Adonijah that Solomon has been anointed king over Israel that he has obtained this vestiture by riding David's own donkey, by receiving oil from the tabernacle, and by being placed upon David's own throne. And Adonijah gets scared. Everyone that is there cheering on Adonijah flees as fast as they can because they know that a military action is about to take place and they're going to be labeled as traitors. Adonijah himself gets scared and he runs to the tabernacle and he grabs the altar by its horns and he doesn't move until he gets reassurance that Solomon will not have him put to death. Solomon does precisely that. He sends word to Adonijah next to the tabernacle that he can just go home. Adonijah later on concocts a bit of intrigue. We learn through a combination of the kings and I believe that it's also mentioned in 1 Chronicles that David was severely stricken. He was ill. Actually required a nursemaid, if you will, to assist him someone who Solomon himself was in love with. In fact, if you read the Song of Solomon, her name isn't mentioned, only her ethnicity. And it matches the lady who was David's maid. So, it's kind of a compensation trying to undermine Solomon's authority and knowing that Solomon apparently had these feelings for the uh, Shulamite woman, Adonijah asks Bathsheba, knowing that Solomon could never refuse a request from his mom, he asked Bathsheba to make this run request on his behalf that he is allowed to marry the Shulamite woman. And the second that she does, she just to make peace with the family, she goes and she asks Solomon if he will allow this to happen because not only is king over Israel does he have that political authority, but he assumes authority over the house of David as well. He knows that the intrigue is up. He knows what's going on. And he, at that point, sensing the rebellion that's about to take place, calls for Adonijah's execution. David also calls Solomon before his death to his side. And as he is crowned king of Israel, according to Josephus' history, crowned at the age of 15, David offers him these charges. Be strong. Be a man. Observe the law and the covenant of the Lord your God, and God will be faithful to keep his promises made with that covenant that he gave to David. He also asked Solomon to discharge some very overdue punishments. Let's take a look at 1 Kings chapter 3. 1 Kings chapter 3. This is one of the most famous passages regarding King Solomon. It's where God himself makes a covenant with Solomon, son of David. Solomon made an alliance with Pharaoh, king of Egypt, by marrying Pharaoh's daughter. That should halt you right there because we just discussed some of the things that the king of Israel is never to do. Solomon brought her to the city of David until he finished building his palace. 
the Lord's temple, and the wall surrounding Jerusalem. However, the people were sacrificing on the high places because until that time a temple for the Lord's name had not been built. Solomon loved the Lord by walking in the statutes of his father David, but he also sacrificed and burned incense on the high places. The king went to Gibeon to sacrifice there because it was the most famous high place. He offered a thousand burnt offerings on the altar. At Gibeon, the Lord appeared to Solomon and asked, What should I give you? And Solomon replied, You have shown great and faithful love to your servant, my father David, because he walked before you in faithfulness, righteousness, and integrity. You have continued this great and faithful love for him by giving him a son to sit on his throne as it is today. O Lord my God, you have now made your servant king in my father David's place. Yet I am just a youth with no experience in leadership. Your servant is among your people that you have chosen, a people too many to be numbered or counted. So give your servant a receptive heart to judge your people and to discern between good and evil. For who is able to judge this great people of yours? So what is Solomon asking for? Wisdom. He's not just asking to be intelligent. Give me a receptive heart. What is he asking to be receptive to? The will of God himself. For the beginning, for, for the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. This is how we see his own proverb come to pass. Now it pleased the Lord that Solomon had requested this. So God said to him, because you have requested this, and did not ask for a long life or riches for yourself or the death of your enemies, but have asked for discernment for yourself to administer justice. I will therefore do what you have asked. I will give you a wise and understanding heart, so that there has never been anyone like you before and never will be again. In addition, I will give you what you did not ask for, both riches and honor so that no king will be your equal during your entire lifetime. If you walk in my ways, underline this, this is important, this is a difference. The Davidic covenant, a good deal of it, was unconditional. Here's a condition. If you walk in my ways and keep my statutes and commandments, just as your father David did, I will give you a long life. So in real brief, what we're going to see here is God is very faithful, and he's not only faithful, but he's very patient. One of the first things that Moses was commanded to write down regarding the laws of the kings of Israel was that he is to have no political relations with Egypt whatsoever. He's to send no one to Egypt to obtain horses. In fact, in the in the in the the law before the laws of the kings, it says that an Israelite should never go to Egypt. Never return to the place of slavery. Not only did he send envoys to Egypt, not only did he establish relations with Egypt, not only did he obtain a whole bunch of horses from Egypt, but what else did he get from Egypt? His wife, a non-Israelite, non-believing wife. Here's one of the differences between Solomon and and we've already discussed Ruth. 
Ruth was born a Moabite, and yet because of the love of her mother-in-law Naomi, she was able to proclaim, your people shall be my people, your God shall be my God. She stopped being a Moabite in that instance when she proclaimed faith in the one true and living God. Solomon's wife, and then later wives, plural, had no such regard. Really quickly, overview of, of the life of King Solomon the wise. He reigned in Israel roughly from 970 to 931 B.C. Again, he was the son of David and Bathsheba. He was the compiler and author of the Proverbs. He's also a composer of many psalms. He is the author of the books of Ecclesiastes and, of course, the Song of Solomon, which he put together presumably about the same person that his brother Adonijah was in love with, the Shulamite woman. And he is also known as the builder of the first temple. He is given two names in the record of his birth. His mother wanted to call him Jedediah, which literally translates to beloved of God. But he again was named Solomon, which is closely related to Shalom in the Hebrew language, which means peace or peaceful. But not only Peace does not simply mean in this religion, in this context, peace does not simply mean an absence of conflict. It means an abiding relationship in which everything is kept in good standing. Let's talk a little bit about what Israel was like during his kingship. 1 Kings chapter 4, the zenith of Israel. Judah and Israel were as numerous as the sand by the sea. And they were eating, drinking, and rejoicing. Solomon ruled all the kingdoms from the Euphrates River to the land of the Philistines and as far as the border of Egypt. They offered tribute and served Solomon all the days of his life. So he wasn't just a king over Israel. He was a king who had political sway and influence over a great number of the miniature kingdoms or of the other nations from the borders of what we would call Israel today, as we saw in the book of Judges, excuse me, the, uh, the, the end of the book of Joshua into Judges, all the way up to the Euphrates River, all the way up to the border of what would become the Babylonian Empire. Solomon's provisions for one day were 150 bushels of fine flour, 300 bushels of meal, 10 fattened cattle, 20 range cattle, and 100 sheep and goats, besides deer, gazelles, roebucks, and pin-fed poultry. For he had dominion over everything west of the Euphrates, from Tipsa to Gaza, and over all the kings of the west of the Euphrates. He had peace in all of the surrounding borders. Throughout Solomon's reign, Judah and Israel lived in safety, from Dan in the north to Beersheba in the south, each person under his own vine and his own fig tree. A chicken in every pot... And two cars in every garage, as we would say here in America. Israel was numerous, it was prosperous, it was militarily strong, and the people themselves were not only content, but they were wealthy compared to everyone that was living around them. Verse 26, Solomon had 40,000 stalls of horses. All right, notice what was one of the very first, and might I say strange things, that kings in Israel were commanded not to have, lots of. Horses. 
And Solomon has 40,000 stalls of them for his chariots, 12,000 horsemen. Each of these, those deputies for a month in turn provided food for the King Solomon and for everyone who came to King Solomon's table. They neglected nothing, or more literally, they lacked for nothing. Each man brought the barley and the straw for the chariot teams and the other horses the required place, to the required place according to his assignment. So remember, Solomon in his own palace, this was a day's provision. Every day his household goes through the things listed. Uh, and we'll get into that in just a second. But remember, the man had apparently 1,000 wives, most by political arrangement, but nevertheless the Bible tells us that he loved them passionately. But not only were there his wives to feed, there were also his wives' servants. There were all of his personal servants. There were the king's guard. There were the, uh, the people that were the praetorian guard offered by the Levites. There were the people who were his scribes. There were the people who were his court officials. There were all of the different royal officials from other countries that came to Solomon's court to hear the man talk. He was a noted and famous lecturer in his day for a multitude of different subjects. He had a reputation for being a learned person and people traveled internationally to hear from him. So in brief, the population of Israel grew and they were content. His sphere of influence went from the Mediterranean to the Euphrates and from the Red Sea to Lebanon. His vassal states paid tribute to Israel. And the individual people were also extremely prosperous. We also find out later on in the passage that at this point in time, Israel's, Israel's taxes were manageable, but they were still high, comparatively speaking. Here is Israel under Solomon from the Sinai Peninsula, absorbing Damascus. Damascus has become a north-central city by the time of Solomon's reign. And he is all the way up to the Euphrates in the north and to the west. Solomon had vassal states, kings that reported to him and offered taxes under him and presumably had his protection with all those charioteers and with his military clear into the east. So he was encroaching on what would eventually become the people that would eventually cause Israel to go into exile. But for the time being, Israel is a dominant force in this area. So talking about his own personal wealth, remember these uh, the International Bible Society, the publisher of the NIV, has in its study notes has given us this as the uh, more modern equivalence of the daily provisions found on how much food Solomon's household went through. Five metric tons of flour, 10 metric tons of meal, 10 heads of stall-fed cattle, what we would call veal, 20 heads of pasture-fed cattle, regular beef, a hundred sheep and goats, as well as wild game that it doesn't even list. 4,000 stalls for chariot-grade horses. 12,000 horses. And according to 1 Kings 11, 1 through 8, 700 wives of royal birth, 700 princesses, and 300 concubines, presumably uh, women of lower rank, who may have come from the servant end of things, similar to what happened with Hagar and Abraham or the other two wives of Jacob. So altogether, 
he had 1,000 marital relationships. In his personal influence, he is known to have composed over 3,000 proverbs, 1,005 songs. He gave lectures on a variety of subjects, including horticulture, animal biology, economics, and justice. When talking about the first temple, the preparations to build the temple, including some of its initial building material, had started being collected by his father David, including plans that we find out in the, the books of the Chronicles were handed to him by God. Construction began, uh, the Bible tells us, eight, 480 years after the Exodus event. The construction included beams made of the cedars of Lebanon as well as quarried stone. Altogether, 183,300 workers were called to task to this thing. If we'd had more archaeological evidences to satisfy a bunch of naysayers, this would be and, and is, in my opinion, one of the wonders of the ancient world. Of those that were assigned to task include quarriers, carpenters, loggers, masons, supervisors, and many other skilled worksmen for that day. It was built in a similar pattern to the sanctuary of the tabernacle. And according to 1 Kings 6 and 2 Chronicles chapter 3, at its highest point it was 207 feet tall, 180 feet long from the, at the ceiling, 90 feet wide. Uh, something I want you to realize here when, when you read through what all it was constructed of and for. Almost all of the external appliances, everything outside of the sanctuary building, were made of bronze. What is bronze symbolic of prophetically? Judgment. Because bronze can stand the heat. Nevertheless, all, the, all of the internal appliances were made out of gold. Storage spaces were also constructed surrounding the temple sanctuary uh, as place for the serving priests of the time. There were also two non-load-bearing ceremonial pillars which stood in front of the entrance to the temple proper. Their names were Yachin and Boaz. Yachin meaning he will establish, Boaz meaning in strength. In other words, the two pillars of the Hebrew religion, if you want to think of it this way, are in his wisdom and in his strength. Here you've got a cutaway of the temple sanctuary with the storage rooms for the priests on the outside. You have the entrance to Solomon's porch, that's that section right before the main door of it. The holy place, kind of like the tabernacle, which is two-thirds of the building, where you have the tables of showbread, and you have the menorah. Here instead of just one menorah, you have a bunch of them. You have ten of them, I believe that it was. Then, of course, you have the temple veil, the giant walled curtain, which stands between the priests and the holy place, or the holy of holies, excuse me, in which the Ark of the Covenant was stored. And again, one day a year, after great ceremonial preparation, was someone allowed to venture into the most holy place, the holy of holies, to offer the sacrifice on behalf of the people Israel by sprinkling the ark with blood. Now they were supposed to minister before God day and night, but they never entered that curtain except for the Day of Atonement. 
On the outside there, you have the Bronze Seas, that big bowl of water there where the first, what we would today call baptisms would take place. That was for the ceremonial cleaning of the priests before entering the holy place. And it was also where proselytes, when they were converting to Judaism, where they would be dunked effectively, they would go into the water from a different tribe, a different nation, a different ethnicity, a different religion, having pledged themselves to Israel, and they would emerge a member of the commonwealth of Israel. Now, when Herod comes to power as a way of placating the locals, he will greatly expand both the temple's grounds and the temple complex itself. Unfortunately, this was the height of Solomon's career as king over Israel. This is where, unfortunately, we have to start looking at his life in terms of being a warning. Chapter 11 Starting with verse 9, we read that the Lord was angry with Solomon because his heart had turned away from the Lord, the God of Israel, who had appeared to him twice. He had commanded him about this so that he would not follow other gods, but Solomon did not do what the Lord had commanded. The Lord said to Solomon, since you have done this and did not keep my covenant and my statutes which I commanded you, I will tear the kingdom away from you and give it to your servant. Now remember, this is someone that he had prayed to God for wisdom. He prayed to God for a receptive heart and a discerning judgment. <clears throat> Nevertheless, because he had allowed himself to be involved with foreign women who worshiped foreign gods who were idolaters in their own right, he allowed other temples to be built in Israel within eyesight of his own temple dedicated to God to serve as places of worship for his wives, some of whom were Canaanite, one of whom, as we learned, was an Egyptian. So in eyesight of the exclusivity of God, the symbol of God's divine authority, <clears throat> he also builds other shrines in high places. He builds other temples to other gods within the land of Israel, so his wives could have a place to worship their own gods in the Holy Land. And they drag him into that worship. Solomon, son of David, king over Israel, became an idol worshiper at the behest of his wives. Having heard audibly the voice of God twice. Since you have done this and did not keep my covenant and my statutes which I commanded you, I will tear the kingdom away from you and give it to your servant. However, I will not do it during your lifetime for the sake of your father David. I will tear it out of your son's hand. Yet I will not tear the entire kingdom away from him. I will give, him one, tri I will give one tribe to your son for the sake of my servant David and for the sake of Jerusalem that I chose. So his judgment was that the kingdom would be divided. You've already heard it said, Israel and Judah, or Judah and Israel. From the time of Solomon's son, Rehoboam on, it will be Judah in the south in a near state of constant civil war with the other tribes of Israel to the north. The kingdom will be divided. One of Solomon's servants will rebel and only Judah will remain faithful to David's line. Later on, 
in history. Simeon, of course, gets absorbed, and later Benjamin will align with, with Judah. And again, as God put it, for David's sake, this will happen to Solomon's son, and not Solomon. Solomon will continue to live his own life as king over Israel. One of the adversaries that God raises up in this chapter is an administrator for the tribes of Joseph by the name of Jeroboam. He himself is an Ephraimite, meaning he's from the tribe of Ephraim, the largest of the two. He's appointed what, what you could call a public works supervisor under Solomon during the construction process of the city of David into what would become uh, Jerusalem. During this time period, toward the end of his life, Solomon increased taxes. And because of this sense of discontent that grew up within the citizenry, Israel grew discontented, began to rebel, and saw Jeroboam as a potential ringleader. God actually appointed a prophet, Ahiah, to go to Jeroboam and reveal what was about to happen. So he goes wearing a coat made from 12 different strands of cloth. And he takes his cloak and he sees Jeroboam in a field walking away from Jerusalem. And the prophet takes his own cloak and he rips it into 12 pieces. And he hands 10 of them to Jeroboam, explaining that 10 of the tribes of Israel would be under his rule, that God would give them into his hand. Learning of this, Solomon attempts to arrest Jeroboam, but he escapes into Egypt until after he hears of Solomon's death. And that's where we'll end the first half of 1 Kings. For discussion, of course, as always, get together with your small groups. Read over and share your journaled highlights. But I want you to consider this as we approach the latter parts of the kings of Israel. What are the sources of temptation today? Not the individual temptations. What are their sources? Where do they come to us from? Are there forms of, idol, of idolatry today? There aren't many of us that have these small statues that we burn incense to in our homes right now. Is idolatry still alive and well in our society today? And what key differences, and again this is in discussion in your groups, what key differences can you discern between believers at this point in history and today? What are key differences, at least two, what are key differences between believers in the Old Testament and New Testament Christians? Please continue to meet with your groups. Please encourage one another. And please stay in God's Word. Any questions, either online or from you all, before we dismiss? If not, let's pray. Heavenly Father, it is again we give you thanks and praise for this time that we can come and learn more about you and to continue to support and strengthen each other as we journey together through your, your word, which is precious to us. As a church, we ask that your healing hand would be upon those uh, that could not be with us this evening, those who are precious to us that uh, need a special touch of your hand to be strong, to be uh, granted your comfort, but Lord, for us, continue please to open our hearts, our hands, and our minds to you as we dedicate this time and ourselves into your hands without reservation. 
And thank you for the links that you went through so that we may have a copy of this precious gift of your word before us. So use it to help mold us and shape us into your image. To teach us what, we would, what you would have us to know so that when the day comes we have what is needful to helping others come to know you in a free pardon of sin before it is everlastingly too late and to live a life worthy of your children before you. In the holy name of Christ we pray. Amen. Thank you for joining us at High Lawn Baptist Church. We pray that you were blessed by today's message. At High Lawn, we believe that when you love God, you share His Word. When you love others, you spread the gospel. We would love for you to join us next time, and if possible, to join us in person, to contact or learn more about us, to donate to our ongoing ministry, or most importantly, to learn about the salvation offered to you through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Visit us at highlawnbaptistchurch.org. Once again, thank you, and God bless you.